words in the original Hebrew. And so we don't have a book here that's screaming to us loudly as God prophesies to us in that way. But we do have here, nonetheless, a book through which God does speak to us. He definitely speaks to us. He still speaks to us today through this book. He just does so far more subtly. It works like a mirror. It's as if God puts it up as I speak it in front of us. And we see in this book, we see God. We see God in his majesty and in his splendor and in his sovereignty and his compassion. But if we pay attention, we also see our faces. We see me. We see you behind Jonah. So with that in mind, let's look at Jonah chapter 2 together. We're going to read this second scene in the book, the second scene of 4, and we're going to read from verse chapter 1, verse 17, just to give us that last-minute context as we edge in. This is God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Shoal I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose boughs closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay, for salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes your word speaks to us loudly. Other times it speaks to us subtly. And Lord, as we then tour the book of Jonah, and it does its subtle voice towards us, Lord, would we see you? Would we see you in your majesty, in your glory, and in your splendor? Would we see you high and lifted up for who you really are as the God who saves And Lord, would we see ourselves as the objects of that salvation? And would we be overwhelmed before you? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we said last week, the writer of this book wastes no time in flinging us into this drama. Right from chapter 1, verse 1, this book is fast-paced, it is fast-moving, There's no shortage of dramatic detail. And at the end of chapter 1, the end of that first scene, you realise that chapter 1 is all about one thing. 
The reality that there is nowhere to run from the God of grace and His divine purposes. The reality that though we may try to run from God and His divine purposes, there is nowhere we can run. And so to do so is both futile and ultimately destructive. And we see then in that opening scene just how great God really is. How God is compassionate in His disposition. How He is sovereign in His actions. How He is saving in His purposes. And I trust you, like me last week, saw your face in the mirror as well. As we represent Jonah. That our hearts are prone to wander away from the Lord. Our hearts are prone to run from the Lord. And I trust that helped you marvel all the more in who God is and desirous all the more never to run away from him. And yet as we come to chapter 2, the second scene of the book, you can't help but wonder, how on earth am I going to relate to this bit of the story? You know what I'm saying? Because it's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, and I remember, I remember getting the sort of, you know, the children's story Bible sort of pictures thing. And I remember Jonah, and I just remember there was this massive, like, sort of childish whale, you know, the ones with the sort of massive body and then the tiny little bit at the end. And all I remember is this massive whale, and then it had a pull-out section that you could pull out, and inside the face was Jonah sitting in the whale with a little campfire going. <laughs> so that's been in the image in my mind for years of what the sort of Jonah and the whale is going on here. And you think, you know... It's going to be tricky to relate to that. I mean, how many of you, before I actually started speaking on this series last week, how many of you are already familiar with the story of Jonah and the whale? Raise your hand if you were familiar with the story of Jonah and the whale. Okay, good. How many of you have ever spent some time in your life, three days and three nights, in the belly of a fish? None of us. And so you can wonder, how on earth am I going to relate to this part of the story. How on earth am I going to relate to a dude that's in the belly of a fish for three nights and three days? How am I going to, how am I going to make any sense of this for my life other than this being like, this is a pretty cool story to tell your friends. And it is when you pause on this story and when you gaze further at this scene and you start to perceive and not just see what is going on here, that I think God begins to open up what this scene is really about. And you see, this scene really isn't about what is going on inside the belly of a great fish. This scene is all about what is going on in the belly of Jonah. This scene isn't all about what's going on inside the whale, although we get distracted with that. This scene is actually what is going on in the heart of Jonah. And if there was a placard above then this scene, I think it would simply read as follows. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a prayer of praise, a prayer of thanksgiving, because Jonah realizes God has saved him. God has sent a whale to save him. And the placard above the whole prayer then is salvation belongs to the Lord. This scene isn't about what is going on inside the belly of a fish. This scene is all about what is going on in the heart of Jonah. And as we unpack this second scene, it once again doesn't take long for the main character then to come to the fore. Not the whale, not even Jonah, but God himself. And as Jonah then prays, he he talks to us and communicates to us Glorious things about the God who saves. Three things in particular about how great God is in his salvation. 
And as we see that, as he shows us that mirror, I think we'll also see ourselves in Jonah. And in that, I think it will increase our dependence upon the Lord and it will increase also our gratitude in the Lord, which is why I think this is here at all. So three things. Three things about the God who saves that Jonah points us to very deliberately in this chapter. Here's the first. Number one, God saves people who don't deserve to be saved. You know, reading this prayer, if you're unaware of chapter one, in reading this prayer, you'd think, you know what, surely, surely Jonah is a pretty good guy. I mean, he comes across as maybe even quite an impressive type of guy, maybe even a very holy and righteous man. I mean, this prayer, unless I'm mistaken, is somewhat flowery. It's pretty poetic. It's very pious. If you just had isolated this prayer, you'd think, surely this is a very holy and righteous man. Surely this man, as he finds himself drowning before the Lord, surely he's an individual, a candidate that deserves to be saved by God, given who he is. And to really understand this prayer, you have to remember what has taken place in chapter 1. To really understand this prayer, you have to understand who Jonah really is. And so you have to read chapter 2 in light of Jonah chapter 1. And as you do that, you realize Jonah doesn't deserve to be saved at all, does he? Do you remember what happens in Jonah chapter 1? We get introduced to him. Jonah, the prophet, son of Amittai. He's a man called by God set apart by God and sought out by God to speak to his people. So in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, we have God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh and in effect to preach to them about the good news of Yahweh. In effect to call them to repent. God in his grace wants to save people in their thousands in Nineveh. And yet this prophet doesn't want to do that. So instead he takes off in the other direction. He doesn't answer God at all. Notice that. He doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't say a thing. He just runs away from God right up front. And so instead of going to Nineveh, a few hundred miles to the east, he heads off to Tarshish, a few thousand miles to the west. Instead of going to what is modern-day Iraq, he goes on his Mediterranean cruise to Spain. He is off. He is running away from the Lord. He has no interest in doing what God has called him to do. And as we read in those opening verses, he's actually not just running away from God geographically, he's running away from God himself. The very presence of God he wants to run away from. He wants to find somewhere that God isn't so that he can get on with his life. Quite clearly, there is something in what God has called Jonah to do that Jonah does not like. And so in rank disobedience, in rank disobedience before the Lord, he goes toe-to-toe with Yahweh, and runs from him. He's not interested in seeing Nineveh get saved, thank you. And so he runs from the Lord, he sets sail to Spain, and yet God in his grace sends a mighty storm to intercept him. God sends a mighty storm on this boat as it heads towards Spain to try and intercept Jonah. And this mighty wind that he sends on the sea in that moment, everything responds to God in his sovereignty. So as God sends a mighty wind, the sea responds. A great tempestuous sea arises. The boat responds. It's bobbing up and down all over the place. And as we see in the original Hebrew, the boat itself becomes effectively a person and the very boat thinks it's going to break up. It's sure that my time is coming to an end. 
The sailors respond. They start crying out to every god they can think of. They know there's something mysterious taking place here. Everything and everybody is responding to the great sovereignty of God in this moment, except for Jonah. Because Jonah is downstairs, the boat of the ship, asleep. He's not interested. His heart is so hardened to the Lord. He's in the middle of the boat, totally asleep and uninterested with what God is doing. So God seeks to get his attention again. He sends Jonah, his very own missionary. The captain of the boat comes downstairs and says to Jonah, Arise! Call out to your God! Jonah's still not interested, but he comes up from his sleep, he comes up on deck, and he finds the sailors casting lots to work out who it is. And lo and behold, the lot falls on Jonah. Just as we heard last week, Donald Gray Barnhouse talks about how man throws the dice, but it is God who makes the spots come up. Isn't that beautiful? God is sovereign over all things. And as Jonah comes on deck, the spots fall on him. And everybody realizes in that moment, Jonah, this is you. God is seeking to get your attention. God is coming after you. Without doubt, God is doing all he can to get Jonah's attention. And yet without doubt, Jonah doesn't care less. He's not bothered. And so in effect, he goes up to the sailors and he says, yep, okay, it's me. Just throw me over. I don't even care. Just throw me in. It'll get better for you. Who cares what happens to me? He's not doing that as some type of hero. He's doing that because effectively he's giving in before the Lord. Well, the sailors, they, 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 they fear the Lord in a way that Jonah doesn't. And so they don't want to throw him in. They don't want to kill this prophet. They try and row to shore. But it's clear to them that no, they're never going to make it alive. They must throw him in. So they throw Jonah in. And that's how Jonah gets into the water. Not as a hero, not as a man of holiness, not as a man of righteousness, but a disobedient, rebellious traitor. That's who Jonah is. He's a man of disobedience. He's a traitor. He says that he fears the Lord, but in reality he doesn't fear the Lord at all. He speaks that he fears the Lord, but in his mind and in his heart he couldn't care less, which is why he's more than happy to run away from the Lord whenever he can. And he's a rebel. He's happy to go toe-to-toe with God and say, Get stuffed. I'm out of here. And yet God in his grace saves him, doesn't he? Why? Because he deserves it? Absolutely not. He's running away from the Lord. Now the reason that God saves him is because God in his grace saves people who don't deserve to be saved. God in his majesty and splendor as the God of grace saves people who don't deserve to be saved. And as Jonah placards this truth before our eyes in this prayer of thanksgiving, I think it's a truth that is gloriously relevant to every one of us in this room. Every face. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Thanks for coming. If that's you, we're so grateful that you would be with us and presencing yourself, even though right now you don't worship Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And maybe you hear this news that God saves people who don't deserve to be saved and you think, that, that's, that's great. 
But you don't find that particularly relevant and neither are you particularly excited about that. Because in your mind, you just think, what, what has that got to do with me? I mean, I'm just sitting here. It's a bit chilly, seems to be warming up. Looking forward to lunch. Can't wait for this afternoon. But what has this news, what has this news got to do with me about how God saves people who don't deserve to be saved? It seems irrelevant and it doesn't excite you at all. The reason why I think so often for people who don't know the Lord that news can seem irrelevant and unexciting is because prior to salvation you are rarely aware of the great storm that you find yourself in. You're not even aware of what's going on. You're not even aware of the reality of what this book preaches to us. See, this book teaches us that God made us. It was God who knitted us together in our mother's womb and God made us to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in Him. He made us for His good pleasure and He made us in a way that we were designed to worship Him and find our peace and our joy and our purpose in Him. And yet mankind very quickly rebelled against that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and we've been doing it ever since. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, all of mankind, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. And this book goes on to paint very, very clear consequences to that. Very clear consequences of our rebellion against the Lord. Because of our sin, we're cut off from the Lord. And yet more than that, Because of our sin, we are on a collision course with the sea of his wrath. In our sin, we are literally drowning before the Lord. And that day when we die, we won't just receive nothingness. We won't receive welcome home. In our sin, we will receive the mighty, tempestuous sea of his wrath for all eternity. That's what this book teaches. This book talks about a day to come where we stand before the Lord and in His righteousness and holiness and in our sin, who can stand before Him? Because in His wrath, He will punish our sin for all eternity. That's the reality of our situation outside of Jesus Christ. And yet 2,000 years ago, God in His profound grace to mankind sent His only begotten Son, He sent the second Jonah, the one who wouldn't run, the one who, unlike Jonah, just didn't nearly die, but who did indeed die in our place. One who didn't spend three nights in the belly of three nights and three days in the belly of a fish, but spent three nights and three days in a grave because he died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again victorious. God the Father himself saying, yes, your work has indeed been done. The great rescue has been fulfilled. So Jesus Christ now resides at the right hand of the Father. And he cries out to us all the time, look to me and be saved. Come to me, I will save you from the coming sea of God's wrath to come. My friends, the reason why we often don't find this truth of God saving people who don't deserve it to be relevant or exciting is because we misunderstand the great danger we're in. 
But you are in danger if you're outside of Jesus Christ. You're on a collision course with his wrath. You're cut off from him. But there is a way of salvation. And his name is Jesus. And I want to encourage you, cry out to him. Put your faith in him today as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. You won't instead be cut off from the Lord and look towards that day of the sea of wrath. In God's grace, you'll go from an object of his wrath to a child of God. Forgiven, redeemed, adopted. Knowing that when your eyes close in death, heaven will be your home. This story relates to you. Relates to you if you don't know Jesus. But it also relates to you if you're a believer too, doesn't it? Relates to us because if we've been paying attention to this story, we'll see that Jonah's story is our story as well, isn't it? Where were we before we got saved? Were we running towards the Lord? Are we here just because we happen to grow up in a certain home? Are we here because at just one time we thought we'd go to church? No, the Bible's clear for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. No one looks to God, not even one. We were like Jonah, running in the opposite direction. And yet God in His grace sent His Son to rescue us. Like the great whale, He sent His Son to rescue us. Is that not incredible? It's your face, it's your story you're meant to discern in Jonah chapter 2 relates to us. Did we deserve to be saved? No. But God saved us. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it this way. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. How many of you were wise according to worldly standards? How many were powerful? How many were of noble birth? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and sanctification and redemption. Listen. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, like Jonah, you are running away from the Lord and like Jonah, you are in the sea of despair. And yet God in His grace came after you and He rescued you and He pulled you from the sea of God's wrath and He brought you up to sit beside Him as an heir of Christ Himself. Is that not incredible? My friends, God saves people who don't deserve to be saved. It's placarded before our eyes right here in Jonah chapter 2. But that's not all we see about the saving grace of God. Number two, God can save us anytime and anywhere. And I love this. See, as Jonah offers up this prayer of praise to the Lord, we not only learn that God God saves people who don't deserve to be saved, we also see quite clearly from his example that God can save us any time and anywhere. That quite literally it's never too late for God to save us. We're never so far gone. It's not like I've been on this boat for so many years, surely God is too far away from me now to really save me. I've already screwed up. I've already lost it. 
Or I've got to such a place in my life because of my sin that surely God can't save me anymore. I'm too far gone. I'm too busy eating with the pigs. I've rejected him for so long. And yet right here we see a story that illuminates to us that it is never too late for God to save us and there are no circumstances or situations which God can't save us from. I mean, think and look with me about Jonah's situation. Look at verse 3 as Jonah describes the situation he finds himself in. Verse 3 he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. That's interesting because he says, you cast me into the deep. Actually, it was the sailors that cast him into the deep, wasn't it? But Jonah realizes even behind the sailors' hands are God's sovereign hand. You cast me into the deep. And I deserved it, Lord. It's exactly what I was asking for before you. And as you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, your floods surrounded me. And above me I could hear the the waves and the sea billowing above my head. Then at verse 5, For the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. So vivid, isn't it? He's saying, I was literally drowning before you. And as I hit the bottom, as I hit the bottom of the ocean, at the very root of the mountains that I was looking up at, seeing I descended so far with, I I love the second half of verse 5, with weeds wrapped about my head. Is that not vivid? He's at the bottom of the ocean, looking up at the mountains above him, with weeds wrapped around his head, aware that the sea is swallowing him, he he is in effect about to breathe his last. He is running out of oxygen in his bones. That's his circumstance. And yet, verse 2, And yet I called out to the Lord out of my distress. As I lay there with weeds wrapped around my head, at the very root of the mountains at the bottom of the ocean, Lord, I I called out to you in my distress, verse 6b, and you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I was dying. I was surely about to breathe my last. I had weeds wrapped around my head. There was no more oxygen in my body. And yet I called out to you in my distress, and you, O Lord, heard my cry. Friends, isn't that beautiful? There is nowhere we can go, no circumstance or situation, to which God says, I'm really sorry, but it's just too far gone. This is too hard for me. There's no situation where God says, listen, it's just taken too long. It's just too late. Now what is very clear in this story of Jonah is whatever situation you get yourself in, whatever time you get yourself into it, if we cry out to the Lord, He will answer us in our distress. Because He is a famous and glorious God of grace. What a wonderful truth this is for our soul as well, isn't it? To know that God can save us anytime and anywhere. Because in all truth, we can all face the sea of our sin at different times, can't we? 
We can all, whether we be as unbelievers or believers, we can all face the sea of sin at different times, can't we? Where we're a think, I'm just never going to change it. I'm never going to be able to turn from this. It just binds me up. I feel like I've got weeds wrapped around my head. I'm never going to get anywhere on this. And yet we learn here as we cry out to God, He can save us anytime and anywhere. Likewise, we can face the sea of our circumstances, can't we? I'm just thinking a lot about that this week. As we think about our circumstances, who amongst us can't relate to Jonah? At least at some points in our lives. Those times when the sea of our circumstances seem to be closing in around us. The sea of our health. And we just find ourselves seemingly at the bottom of the sea. And you just think, I, I've got nothing left. I'm never going to get better. This situation is never going to improve. I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to cope. Or the sea of our relationships. Where the very thing we're, we're wanting and hoping, it just never ever seems to be happening. And we can just feel like the whole world is crashing in around us. That there's never going to be an improvement. At the sea of our work. Whatever way we seek to turn in our lives, where we seek to improve our work situation, wherever we seem to turn, the whole world just seems to be coming in around us. It just never seems to work out. We constantly seem to get hit and beefed around by the sea of circumstances. The waves of anxiety seem to keep hitting us in the face. We just seem to take one step up and then we take ten backwards. There are so many things that happen in our lives where I think if we're honest, we can relate to Jonah. That we can also feel that the weeds are around our head. We can also feel that we are about to drown. We can also feel that... I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. I can't see me ever being able to get out of this sea of despondency that I find myself in because of our circumstances. Well, my friends, be encouraged. Because in Jonah chapter 2, we realise that God can save you anytime and anywhere. God is the sovereign, gracious and majestic King of all. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in, however long it's been, And wherever you have found yourself, God in his grace is big enough to save you. Because God in his grace can send a whale to save Jonah while he is about to breathe his last at the bottom of the sea. So surely he has the power to save you. God is the one who holds the key to our challenges. God is the one, whether we find ourselves in the sea of our sin or our circumstances, that has the power to save, to bring grace to the humble, to bring strength to the weak, to bring encouragement to those that are discouraged, to bring rest and refuge to those that feel they're about to drown. God is the God who saves. And he can do it any time and anywhere. We just need to cry out to him out of our distress, like Jonah did. We need to call out to the Lord. Cry out to Yahweh for help. Lord, would you help me? Would you help me in the midst of all I'm going through? And my friends, cry out to him. We must. And here's why, point three. Because it is only God who can save. It is only God who can save you. 
with me at verse 7. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the only one that could save Jonah in this moment. As Jonah is about to breathe his last breath, he cries out to God in his distress, and God incredibly and dramatically saves Jonah through the sending of a great fish. And so Jonah's cries, he completes his whole prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to you, Lord. You are the one who can answer us out of our distress. You are the one who can save us, whatever sea we might find ourselves in. For you are the God who saves because salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, that is such a simple and sustaining truth, isn't it? I reckon if we went in to our kids' work and talked to them, you'd find that they could also tell you the same thing. Yes, God is the God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet, grievously, when you stop and consider your own life, and you consider the rough seas of your life, if you're like me and you're honest, I think you'll say then with me, You know, even in the seas of my life, the rough seas of my life, I'm tempted to run to so many other things apart from God. It's so easy to see it in the text. God is the God who saves. And yet in the midst of the seas of our lives, our hearts can be so so quickly drawn to so many other things, can't they? Maybe this will help me. Maybe this will save me. Maybe this will give me peace. Maybe this will give me hope. All the time, God's screaming, I'm your answer. And yet we run to so many things in the midst of the seas of our lives. That's why verse 8 is here. That's why he says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because 2,800 years ago, people ran to vain idols as well. And in truth, I think we still do it today. The sea of our circumstance starts to overwhelm us. We're aware that it's a rough sea. We should be running to the Lord, but but we run to so many other things, don't we? For example, the idol of self. So we have the rough seas of life, and instead of running to the Lord, who do we run to? We run to ourselves. And it's one of my greatest challenges at different times. Should be running to the Lord, who do I run to? My office. We'll figure it out. We'll sort it out. Just give me a minute. I love self. I was talking to somebody yesterday from another church and they're actually trying to get a building for their church. And they were just incredibly anxious about the whole thing because it seemed to be just falling through for so many different reasons. And they were definitely experiencing a tumultuous sea. You know what, as I was listening to them and I was thinking about this message, it quickly became aware, you know what? You're not running to the Lord. You're running to the idol of self here. You're anxious because you just think you've got to figure it all out. I've got to do it. I've got to figure it all out. 
when in reality God's in control of this sea. He's the one. And there's times then when we can't figure it out, isn't there? There's things that we can't figure out as we run to other idols. The idol of food. Or as our culture likes to call it, you know, comfort eating. It's actually an idol that we're worshipping, but we'd like to call it comfort eating. But we run to it, don't we? Maybe this will just, it'll just see me through the storm. It'll just take the edge off the storm. So we just try and eat. Or we turn to drink and alcohol. Or we turn to work. And we just bury ourselves in work to try and distract us from the storm, hoping that, that this will in some day help us, this will in some way save us from our problems and our difficulties. Or the idol of exercise, or money, or sex, or relationships. The idols go on. The amount of things in the midst of the storms of our lives that we try and run to to try and numb the pain, to try and give us hope, when in reality all we really need to do is run to the Lord. And you know what I've found? Well, here's what I've found in my life. After idolizing myself and figuring out, I can't figure it out. I haven't tried there, maybe food or, or drink or relationships or whatever else it is. When all else fails, you then run to the idol of sleep. <laughs> At least I do. It's exactly what Jonah does. This is all just getting a bit much. I've said it to my wife at different times. Look, this is just getting, okay, this is, this is just too intense. I'm just going to go to bed for a bit. I'll figure it out. What's bed going to do? No one knows what bed's going to do. But, but it's an idol of sleep. We think if I could just worship that idol in that moment, I will wake up and, oh, oh, the sea is calm. All is well. And, and it is for about 20 seconds. And then you realize, oh, no, the problem's still here. Because that's the reality. It's just an idol. It's something we're worshiping and we're finding our hope in and we're running to for peace. But in reality, when you get your head off the pillow, the sea is still going. You can't keep getting back up and then going back to bed again. My friends, just as it says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When we run to vain idols, we run away from the only one who can truly help us. Because it is only God who can save It's only him. Not your food, not your health, not your work, not your money, not your intimacy, not yourself, not your sleep. It is only God who can save you. Whether you be in the midst of a sea of sin or whether you be in the midst of a sea of circumstances, as those winds are howling around, it is only God who can save you. It is only God. And so I want to urge you then, cry out to him. Stop running to 50 things in the horizontal for answers. And run to him, the one who has power to sustain and give encouragement and grace and power, the one who alone has the divine power to save your circumstances. Run to him. You know, we do have such a wonderful picture and portrait of God in this chapter, don't we? As Jonah prays to the Lord, he outlines just wonderful pictures of God as the saving one of all. The one who saves people who don't deserve to be saved. The one who in his grace can save us any time and anywhere. And the one who in his power is truly the only one who can save us. 
The only one who can reach out into the seas of our lives and truly save us by his grace. And so as we then emerge from this chapter, as we swim together to the top of chapter 2, how are we meant to respond to it? Because we can see God in this mirror. And the truth is, I think we can see ourselves as well as those who are being saved, those who God in his grace has saved and continues to save, how are we meant to respond then, having seen ourselves in the mirror? Or two things, just to close. Number one, I think we respond with increased gratefulness towards the Lord. Increased gratefulness. Because my friends, as you consider your life and your salvation, here's what I want to put to you. The only thing you have ever brought to your salvation is your sin. That's it. The only thing you were doing prior to your salvation was running away from the Lord. And as he pursued you, not necessarily through a sea or a boat or a sailor or whatever it be, but as he pursued you, you kept running. Whatever your story, you were passionately running away from God. And yet God in his grace sent one far greater than a whale, far greater than Jonah, for you to save you from the sea of despair and sin that you were in. My friends, that should encourage and cultivate an increased gratefulness towards the Lord in your life. J.I. Packer says it this way. I love this. He says, To know that from eternity past my Maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me, and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the Divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Saviour, and that in love He became man for me, and died for me, and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me, and gave Himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through His messengers, has by His Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with Himself, and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that should bring me overwhelming gratitude and joy. Amen to that. To know that from eternity past, the only reason why you are here today worshipping the Lord is because as you are running away from Him, as you are drowning, He chose you and then sent His Son to die in your place. He gave you the gift of faith to respond to Him. And He did everything to make it possible for you to be forgiven and adopted and justified and redeemed and to know heaven is your home. To know that He did absolutely everything should invoke in our hearts overwhelming gratitude and joy towards the Lord. Should it not? We should be, as Christians, the most excited people alive. Because if you really believe that you have been saved from a storm far greater than anything we see in Jonah, we should be walking around each and every day of our lives, shaking our heads in disbelief and humble gratitude towards the Lord. Because He saved us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything towards it. And yet He plucked me from the grave. And He saved me. What incredible grace. Seeing Jonah's prayer should 
invoke our, our eyes on it in such a way where we realize this is my story as well. And just like Jonah then responds with a prayer of praise, he's literally thanking God all the way through this. So should our lives be, I think. Lives characterized by gratitude and joy. Well, as we emerge then from Jonah chapter 2, I think one way we respond is with increased gratefulness towards the Lord. But there's also another one. Number two, I think we should respond with increased dependence upon the Lord. My friends, I know it because I know it in my life as well. I've been a pastor for 15 years and I interact with people every day of my life. I know it that we have a tendency and a temptation whenever the sea comes to run to so many idols, to run to so many things that we think will answer our problem, will give us hope and the peace and the satisfaction we're looking for. But they never do, do they? It's like the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. You're constantly chasing it and you just get close and it's gone. They're vain idols. Friends, if you really want to get saved from the sea that you're in, it's just one thing you need to do. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord in the midst of all you're going through because he is the God who saves. For quite literally, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so as we come up then from Jonah chapter 2, would gratefulness and dependence truly be our themes? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way you speak to us. Lord, you humble us in the way that you communicate to us, not only, not only loudly, but as we said before, subtly as well. Drawing us into your arms, drawing us into your care, drawing us into your grace as you communicate to us your care. Lord, as we contemplate Jonah chapter 2, we realize it is your heart and passion to save. It's why you, you scream to us from this chapter that you are the God who saves because you want to save us. Well, did you forgive us then for all the times in our lives when we do run to vain idols? Food, health, sleep, exercise, money, sex, drink. Well, the list goes on as we, as we perceive in our minds these will satisfy us. They will give us hope. Lord, you are the only one who saves. So Lord, would we be a people then who run to you? And Lord, I thank you in advance that as we run to you, we will find you to be the one who saves. The one who gives us peace the one who gives us joy, the one who gives us sustenance and refuge and rest, the one who in power can change our circumstances. So would we run to you, Lord? In Jesus' name, Amen.